Okay, welcome back. As you're taking your seats, let me uh, have the privilege of announcing that Lucas and Anna have a little baby girl. <laughs> I guess you knew that was coming. Uh, we all knew it was coming. She was coming. Um, so I haven't heard details. Anybody know? I guess I think they're doing well. Name is, here we go, James. Yeah. So it's, uh, uh-huh. it's Melissa May. So they're calling her Millie May. She's born at 8, 10 p.m. on the 25th, 7 pounds, 14 ounces, 20 and a half inches. I saw Lucas last night. They are doing well. All right. Good. Praise the Lord. Thanks for that, James. Yeah. Um, so I, I know Lucas's mom is coming back. They were just here, but she's coming back. Uh, in the meantime, though, uh, Roxy is going to sort of lead a uh, point on providing food in the future. Uh, mom will leave, and at some point, I think it'd be good just to keep blessing them with food. So, Roxy, you just... Stand up there. Awesome. Thanks, Roxy. Okay, friends, we're in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, if you'd turn there this morning. Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, we really actually now get into, I guess, kind of the meat of this letter. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Bibles. Perfect. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, so Hebrews 7 is, uh, as I said, it really, we dive in now to really kind of the core issue, uh, the reason, and the main exhortation that the writer has in writing to the church, is to remember that Jesus is our eternal high priest. And I hope by God's grace to make some good application for ourselves this morning. Um, You know, depending on what your background is, you may not have much connection with a priesthood. Uh, I certainly didn't. I was fairly irreligious growing up, but uh, finally came to faith and into the evangelical church, and we don't have priesthood. I know in some of the high church movements there are Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Episcopalian, and so on. And so you might be a little bit more familiar with that if, uh, if that is your background. Uh, so at any rate, uh, the main point of the author, actually just look at chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, he said, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected in not man. So that I've sort of taken as the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews. It's the majesty and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So as we come to chapter 7, by the way, I just want to tell you that the title of this sermon, I don't always title them, but I'm going to title this one, Money Talks. This really isn't a study about money. 
or tithing, although that plays a, a, an important role in, in the study this morning, as you will see. I think uh, tithing is only mentioned in the New Testament a handful of times, and they're right here in chapter 7. That is, as it relates to the church or how we might connect to it. So here, um, it's a study uh, really not about money. It's a study about worship. Okay? Uh, tithing is worship. Just like prayer is worship. And obedience to God to live a holy life is worship. Serving one another. Forgiving one another. This is worship. Where we're, we're responding to His grace in our lives and living accordingly for His glory. That's, that's worship. And I think that what we'll see from the text this morning is that when we understand the heart of worship, tithing will take care of itself. All right? As Jesus famously said there, uh, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And, and what he meant there, uh, several things, but I think primarily instant takeaway is that you're obligated by the law to give Caesar tax. But we're obligated by love to give God our heart and our soul and our future and our will and our mind. And, and love puts that upon us. It's not, we do it out of compulsion, out of desire to honor him. Because we're made in His image. And uh, so that really is at the heart of this, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have some understanding. I, I want to frame this study. As we get into this, um, it can, you can get lost in the weeds in a hurry. Because <laughs> we're dealing with some ancient uh, Judaism. We're dealing with the tabernacle and all the ancient ceremonies that we're that surrounded worship at the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple there in Jerusalem that Solomon built. Uh, there's a lot of layers to it. And, uh, but I want to frame it this way. That God loves you. And He desires a personal relationship with you. And without that basic understanding, which is the heart of the gospel, it's the heart of the Bible, then we will get lost in the details. The main point, as I said, is that for the next several chapters, Jesus is our high priest forever. Which means, because Jesus is the high priest forever, it means the elimination of the previous priesthood that was required by God to maintain the relationship between himself and his chosen people. Okay? God chose Abraham, and then from him came Israel. God loves people. And he chose this people, the Jewish people, to be a light to the world, to demonstrate to the world what it's like to be loved by God and to respond back to him. Well, sin separates us from God. And so in order to maintain the relationship, God set up a simple system of sacrifice. And there was a priest who would mediate between people and God. And, and really, the, the, the great moment or the great day of forgiveness, if you will, was the day of atonement. Okay? This is Old Testament now. The day of atonement where the high priest... One man would go into the most holy place. He would go behind this curtain that kept the uh, God sort of sealed off from direct contact with people. But on that one day, the high priest was allowed into, is actually required to go into, to make an offering for himself and for the people, for all the people. One man making one offering for all the people on one day. And, what, and, and the way God set it up is that on that day, all the sin you had committed the previous year, it was atoned for. Provided, of course, that the high priest would, would be faithful and execute his office properly. If he came back out alive, then that means everybody claps. It's like, oh good, God forgave me. All, my, all that past junk, it's now behind me. It's now behind me. 
And God set this up because He loves people. And He wants to maintain that personal relationship, open communication with Him. And so He established the priesthood. Jesus is our high priest forever. And because He lives now as a high priest forever, it eliminated the need. It eliminates the need for the previous priesthood. It also establishes, important point, it also establishes the priesthood of the saints. Right? The author of Hebrews already made that point. That we can come boldly now to the throne of grace. We can act like a high priest. And we can just go right into the presence of God because of a forgiveness of our sin and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right? That's the significance. In case you didn't know, that is the significance of the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem being torn from top to bottom after Jesus died on the cross. It was, it was a, just a, an open sort of parable, if you will. It's like, so you put your faith in Christ, you now have access to God. Don't need a priesthood anymore. Eliminates the priesthood, establishes the priesthood of the saints. So I think it's important that we, that we frame it that way. Just remember that Almighty God is gracious and holy and forgiving, and He's made a way for us to have a relationship with Him. Previously, it was in an old covenant. It was a, the, the original covenant that God made with His people. And because they were not always faithful, He had this system for keeping the relationship good, keeping it tight. Jesus comes and eliminates the need for that. Before I go any further, uh, we're going to read about a guy named Levi. He made blue jeans. All right, that was a stupid thing. Um, Levi was um, one of the sons of Jacob. You guys, I, I trust you know this, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and from those 12 sons formed the nation of Israel, right? And they come into the promised land ultimately, and they divide up into their family categories, 12 tribes, we would call them. Levi was Abraham's great-grandson. He was son number three. And Levi was selected by God to his family, that is, to do the work of the priesthood. Okay? So Levi had sons, and of those sons, God chose Aaron. So Aaron was a descendant of Levi. And Levi had a lot of sons, but of those sons, God chose Aaron to be the high priest. Right? The high priest that we've talked about. Day of Atonement and so on. All the other sons of Levi that were not in Aaron's family, sometimes you'll read they're commonly referred to as Levites or priests, and they basically assisted the work of the high priest. Okay? So just a simple thing to understand as we get going here, uh, that Aaron was a high priest, and anyone that was from Aaron's family... Uh, over time, his progeny, I guess you'd say, they're descended from him, they would inherit the priesthood by birth. And then all the other Levites that had come from Levi that weren't of Aaron's family particularly, they were priests, but they assisted the work of the high priest. Okay, we had to cover that. Now let's go to our text, Hebrews 7. <laughs> And it says, for this Melchizedek, I'm sorry, let's start at chapter 6, 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil or the curtain. Okay, uh, there it is. So this hope of forgiveness and eternal life is what he's saying there. Uh, and he, you see what he's saying? He says, our hope is anchored in the fact that Jesus has made a way for us to be in the presence of God. Now and in the future. Verse 20. 
Speaking of Jesus, he was the forerunner who has entered for us, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All right? Um, so, Melchizedek, uh, interesting guy. Uh, actually, why don't we go back and just review? Genesis 14 is the one and only time Melchizedek appears in the narrative of the Old Testament. It's the one and only time he appears, and it's just for a brief moment, and yet the author of Hebrews makes a big deal out about, about this guy because he's a priest of the Most High God. So Genesis 14, just turn back there with me, if you would, chapter 14, verse 14. Um, so this is in the days of Abram. I'm going to call him Abraham, okay, if you don't mind. Genesis 14, 14. Now when Abraham heard that his brother, that his lot, was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That is, he went in pursuit against an army that had captured Lot and a whole bunch of other people. And so he went to defend. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot in his goods as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom, now Sodom was one of the cities that was plundered and captured. Their king had fled. King of Sodom went out to meet Abraham is at the valley of Shava after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, here's our guy, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of, the God, of God Most High. And he, that is Melchizedek, blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And here it is. And Abraham gave him a tithe of all. <laughs> okay? Money talks. That's my point. Friends, Abraham was the most important man on the planet because God had chosen him and had given him the privilege of giving him a promise. He promised that from Abraham would come kings and all the families of the world would be blessed through Abraham. Not through Abraham's cousin, not through Lot, but through Abraham. He's the only living human being on the planet at this time who has God's blessing, God's covenant upon him. And he's living in this privileged state. Humbly. He didn't know this was coming. I suggest to you that he's marching back with his men after victory. Here comes Sodom, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Oh my goodness, what an ex two men completely polar opposite of each other. And King Melchizedek comes out and Abraham's response is, is worship. It's, it's the priest of the Most High God. And here's Adam, Abram, the most important man, if you will, on the planet. But when he sees the priest, he just he gives willfully, voluntarily, spontaneously, lovingly. That's worship. That's tithe. It's an act. It's a spiritual act. He, Abram is demonstrating in this giving that he understands that God is the one who gave him, I think, a supernatural victory. This was a large alliance, uh, an army, that he goes out with 318 men, and God just gives them the victory. And in response to that, he, he meets this Melchizedek priest of God Most High. And, the, and this very important man shows respect and honor. He speaks really through, through his money, through the mediator toward God. Do you see? The priest is the mediator. 
He's come on, in God's behalf, and Abram responds to that. He's like, I just want to express to God how grateful I am for his protection and his sovereign working, sovereignly working in our lives. And so his money is talking big time right here. That this, this man, Abraham, would, would regard Melchizedek and gave him something. So that's, that's the setup that the author of Hebrews is drawing from when he says that Jesus came in the order of Melchizedek. And by the way, the word order, it doesn't mean... Uh, no, really, what I want to say is what it means is he came in the same style. He came in the same character. Like, you know, certain administrations, certain... It just happens with leadership. Our church has a particular sort of style and flavor and, and heartbeat about it. It's different from the vineyard or from Bethel Grove. It's just because it reflects the leadership. And that's just the way it is. And so it says he comes in the order of Melchizedek. He comes in the same character, in the same style, in the same nature, if you will. And that's our high priest. So here, go back now to Hebrews and... We'll just go a little ways this morning, verses 1 through 10. Hebrews chapter 7. Because he's mentioned that Jesus is a high priest forever at the very end of chapter 6, this is really what he wants to talk about. Because he's, these are Christians who have a Jewish background, who for various reasons were just wanting to kind of backslide into the old way and start to have a human mediator between them. Maybe they enjoyed all the incense and the, and the liturgy and the things that went with it. I don't know. I think it was just kind of an escape route because it was being hard to be identified as a Christian. And so they thought, well, we're not really in trouble if we identify as a Jew, but to be a Christian? Mm. And so they start to go back. And the author's writing he said, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. Jesus is our high priest forever. So the author says here in verses 1 through 3, he sort of introduces Melchizedek to us. And he breaks it down quite simply into his character and his qualifications. But let me just say to you now that uh, Melchizedek doesn't define who Jesus is. Jesus defines who Melchizedek is. Okay? Please understand that as we go. That's very, actually very important. That we don't learn about Jesus from Melchizedek. We learn, it's the other way around. We learn about Melchizedek from Jesus. And I just want to say to you, my friends, that I think it's really impressive that this man who wrote this letter, he basically, as a born-again Christian who has a personal relationship with Jesus, he's reading his Old Testament. And you know what he does? He just starts asking a whole bunch of questions of the text back there in Genesis 14. That's, that's good study. And from that questioning of the text, observation and interpretation, he's, he comes up with actually a whole new revelation and understanding of Melchizedek, which I'm not sure had been known before. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the benefit of your personal Bible study. I can't emphasize this enough. Take some time. If you're not sure what the text is saying, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and just go through the process. Maybe it started just as simple as the guy going, Melchizedek, what a weird name. Zedek. Well, Zedek. Well, that sort of connects to some other words, like the Lord our Zedek, the Lord our righteousness. Oh, that's interesting. Melchi, king, king of righteousness. Oh, that's interesting. This dude back in the Old Testament, his name means king of righteousness. He just ask questions. He's like, what a weird name. I don't know. I don't know that he had a, all the tools that we have today. 
except that he had the Holy Spirit, king of Salem. He knows that Salem in Hebrew, shalom, right? It's peace, king of peace. So he's telling us the character. But we learn how great Jesus is from an example of Melchizedek. Hopefully I'm saying that right. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram, Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, that's his name, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. <laughs> I mean, those descriptors alone, as we know Jesus, he is righteousness. He's the end of the law for righteousness. And he gives peace, and it always comes in that order. You repent and believe in Christ. He gives you his righteousness, and then comes his peace. Romans 5, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God which means I have access to God. Melchizedek couldn't give righteousness. He, he couldn't give peace. He's just as sort of a photocopy, if you will. He's kind of a, a picture, and Jesus is the living and the real. Okay, he's foreshadowing how great Jesus is. And the author is going to go to great lengths here over the next couple of chapters just to make the point that Jesus is the greatest of all time. The goat, as we say in the sports world, right? Probably shouldn't say it that way about Jesus. Doesn't sound right. Right? So his character. It's like so you start making those connections. This is, this is seeing types from the Old Testament and it just came through study. And then he tells us about the qualifications, verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, but made like the Son of God, okay, remains a priest continually. It's a really long sentence. If you start back at verse 1, for this Melchizedek, and then go right to the end, remains a priest continually. All right? So, uh, just an interesting observation that the writer of Hebrews drew from the text back in Genesis, that he remains a priest continually. The point is, friends, that um, what's presented to us, the Melchizedek who's presented to us in the Old Testament, he's, he's foreshadowing the eternal nature of Jesus. And I tell you, I came across a really profound statement by a commentator named F.F. F. Bruce who said that the silence of Scripture is as instructive, informative, and inspired as the statements of Scripture. The silence of Scripture. In other words, when you look at Genesis 14 and you just ask yourself your questions, you go, where'd this guy come from? Melchizedek doesn't tell us. Genealogy is a big thing in the Hebrew culture, in Semitic cultures. Where's his mom and dad? Doesn't tell us. It just says he just arrives as a priest. And as quickly as he arrives, he departs. And so the silence of Scripture sort of gives the impression that he's just always a priest without any genealogical or ancestral background or anybody that follows him. This is really interesting. That This is what the author is just seeing from the text and he's bringing that forward and he's saying that that actually is a perfect representation of the real. That he's kind of like a prefigures Jesus who is king of righteousness, who is king of peace and liberally gives it to those who trust him. And that Jesus himself is, of course, we know, without father and mother, right? And without genealogy, having neither beginning of days, he's eternal. 
So Melchizedek was, verse 3, made like the Son of God. That's very important. He was made like Jesus. He was made to prefigure. Jesus wasn't made like him. It was the other way around. And he remains a priest continually. So this introduction that he gives in these first three verses is actually really important. It kind of builds the foundation for the character and the quality of Jesus as our high priest. He is a king of righteousness forever, which means he's always going to do what's right. Always. He never makes a mistake in your life or in mine. I question it all the time. I want my way. And he in his grace and this great king of righteousness, as he oversees his kingdom, the kingdom of God, the church, he's always doing perfectly by the power of his Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of those who are surrendered to him. And if we're not, he's got his ways. He knows how to discipline his kids. I went like that, didn't I? It's what we used to do. I don't know if he can do that anymore, you know. Uh, anyway, right? He, he chastens those whom he loves. And when you get in trouble, guess what? You don't have to go to a confessional and pray to somebody on the other side of a wall who mediates for you. You go right to the throne of grace. You bow down on your knees and you pour out your heart before your Jesus, who's your high priest, who's your king. And through that confession and that honest gut-level repentance, guess what? His peace restores our lives. The peace of God now comes in. It's like, that is cool because the circumstances haven't changed. But my heart has changed because I'm done wrestling with it now. Or I'm done going after that thing that, that so easily trips me up. Until the next time the temptation comes along. But you gain confidence, don't you? It's like, oh, Lord, you forgave. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Lord, did you just feel like at some point you're going to run out? No, no. He's a priest forever. And what he's accomplished is an anchor for our soul that holds true for all time. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sin you haven't even committed yet. And when we bump into that in the, this afternoon, we come back to him and go, Lord, yeah, my grace is sufficient for you right now. What an awesome king. So verse 4 through 10, the author, and this gets a little interesting here, but he basically gives about four different ways that Jesus is greater than the old priesthood, Right? It's just like, don't go there. Just stay clinging to the Lord. And so he says, uh, now consider how great this man was, that is Melchizedek, to whom the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. I said that wrong, didn't I? To whom even the patriarch, he's making the point that I tried to emphasize earlier. That of all the men in the world, it was only Abraham. And that's the point the author's making. And as we read this, remember, he's holding up Melchizedek as just the foreshadowing of the true. As great as that guy was, Jesus is greater. And he's your high priest. And he's just saying, even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tithe of the spoils or the plunder. By the way, that word spoils or plunder, you might translate that the cream off the top. You all familiar with that term? <laughs> right? Maybe not. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, it means he gave him the best. He didn't just give him the old raggedy stuff that he rescued from Sodom's belongings <laughs> that had been dragged through the mud. No, he gave him gold. He gave him good stuff. Because his heart, he was worshiping God. That's why 
He goes, I want to do this. So he says in verses 5 and 6, and indeed those who are the sons of Levi, there's Levi, right? The priesthood. Those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, contrast, he, Jesus, whose genealogy is not derived from them, or he's actually referring to Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham. So the point that the author wants to make here is that Jesus is not descended from another. The old system, you were born into priesthood. The succession of Levitical priesthood is dependent on ancestry. The Levites collected tithes because of genealogy and law, not from any natural superiority. That's the point. The Levites collected tithes from the law and from genealogy, not from any natural superiority, as we saw with Melchizedek and as we know to be true of Jesus. Bottom line, Jesus is the greatest forever because he's God. No descent, he's eternal. The second point the author makes is verse 7. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. <laughs> all right? That's just uh, absolute fact. The lesser, the better one gives the blessing. Right? Melchizedek comes along, and here's patriarch Abraham, and yet Melchizedek blesses him. The lesser is blessed by the greater. Galeruin <laughs> uh, used to really have a f hilarious illustration of this. This idea of the lesser being blessed by the greater. And he would give an example from uh, Jacob, actually, Levi's dad, when Jacob was wrestling all night with an angel. Now, you feel all familiar with wrestling, okay, right? It's an exhausting sport. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat, and what do they wrestle for, like, three, three-minute periods? And then it's like the guys are flat on their back. Um, and so the point is there, Jacob's wrestling with the angel, and finally Jacob gives up. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so, in other words... If you get the trophy, it's because you lost. <laughs> the less gets blessed by the greater. So it kind of flips the script on, yeah, he's a national champ because he defeated everybody, right? In God's kingdom, he's the greatest, and he blesses those who are humble, like Jacob finally came to the end of himself, and he gave him the blessing, gave him the trophy. Here you go, son. You just... One, lost, whatever. <laughs> so beyond all contradiction, Jesus is the greatest because he blesses. Verse 8, here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Jesus has eternal life. There was a lot of turnover <laughs> in the Levitical priesthood. You know why? Anybody know why? Uh, they died. <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, next man up. <laughs> So-and-so didn't make it yesterday. Never with Jesus. <laughs> That's the point he's making. Those mortal men receive tithes. But here he receives them of whom it is witnessed. The silence of Scripture demonstrates that Melchizedek is a type of Christ because there's no indication of his family background or anybody that comes after him. It seems like he's just presented to us as this always priestly guy. Jesus is the greatest because he lives forever. And then verses 9 and 10, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now that's an interesting thing, isn't it? It's like, whoa, because 
in reality, and I did the math, Levi didn't actually show up in the scene for about 500 years later than Abraham. But the author is saying that, hey, you know, so to speak, Levi was actually a future descendant, but he was in Abraham, who was the grandpa of the whole family. That's not hard for us to understand as Christians. We know this. We know this. In Adam, all die. In Christ, shall all be made alive. Two figureheads. Adam was the first, and because of him, we've all inherited a sinful nature. Jesus is the first of another human race, extracted out of the sinful culture, and it's called the church, in Christ. And yet I wasn't there 2,000 years ago, neither were you, and yet here we are today. In Christ, we'll all be made alive. That's not so confusing anymore, is it? When you see it that way. And the author is just saying, money talked. Abraham paid tithes to that man who blesses and lives forever and has no descendants. And he was a figure of your high priest. So hold on to him, brothers and sisters. Hold on to him. What's the point? I just want to close briefly by just saying that I think the author wants us to just admire and love Jesus. How? By tithing. And as I said in the beginning, I think when your heart is responding with a desire to please God, the money will take care of itself. That is the tithe that is required to run churches and pay people that serve within the church. I'm not here asking for your money. I'm here to say, worship God and give. Because it is a spiritual evidence, a tangible spiritual evidence of your love for Jesus. And when I thought about this, I thought, oh, it's so cool. Because in the Christmas story, the wise men come from the east, and what do they do? They come into the house where Jesus is, and they worship the king. They gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh, not cheap stuff. They gave him... They, they wanted to do that. They traveled at their own expense for miles following the star. Where is he that's born king of the Jews? And when they came into the house, it says they fell down and they worshipped him. And then they opened up their treasures and they just gave it to Joseph and Mary, which they lived off of because they had to make a run for it and go to Egypt for a couple of years. God sovereignly providing for them. Poor people they were. And then I thought it was so interesting because then at the end of Jesus' ministry, public ministry, when he's like 30-some years old, he's having dinner with a few friends and here comes this woman who breaks an alabaster box and pours it on his head. She's worshiping the priest. The wise men worship the king and now she's worshiping the priest. Nobody in the room understood. And Jesus said, in pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, the whole world, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Her example, it wasn't about the value of the oil. It was about her acknowledgement of Jesus as her Savior. Before it had happened. She's worshiping the priest, our high priest, there's so many other examples. There's so many other examples of people who worship. It takes a, a tangible expression, and sometimes money's involved. Remember the woman in Luke chapter 7? It says a woman of the city who was an immoral woman had a bad reputation. Everybody knew. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, very valuable, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. She kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Her sins, Jesus said, 
which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And then he looked her right in the eye and said, your faith has saved you. Worship. <laughs> the high priest. And really, the money was incidental. There was an occasion where there was 10 lepers standing on a hill. They see Jesus walking. They start screaming, hey, son of God. Jesus speaks the word. All 10 lepers get healed. Only one comes back and worships. And he was a Samaritan. When he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Jesus said, rise, go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Only God can forgive sin. Jesus is your high priest. Near the end of the Lord's ministry, he's standing in the temple, and it says he sat, sorry, he sat opposite the treasury, and he saw how the people put money into the treasury. Isn't that interesting? I love the way that's worded in Mark. He saw how they did it. Okay, you could mean that they're just like, some people are writing checks, some people are scanning a card, some people have Venmo, I don't know, whatever. It could be the, the incidentals. But knowing Jesus, no, he's looking, he's looking at the motives behind. I know that's happened. I know that's the point because that's the point he makes. It says, many who were rich put in much. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And Jesus elbows his disciples. He said, this poor widow has put in more than for all they uh, put in more, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, which was the value that you and I wouldn't even bend down and pick it up. It's that meaningless. It's not about how much. It's about he loves you, and he desires your affection back toward him. Money talks. You see my point? Well, that's my point. <laughs> I guess I will just close with that. Let's close in song, actually, if you would. Becky and uh, Jeshurun, and y'all can stand up and, and we'll sing. I'll close in prayer. Now, please stand and we'll just worship this last song together. I don't know, I just, I just want to make clear that um, what I said in the very beginning, that the whole priesthood was all there for the maintaining of the relationship between God and his people. Well, Jesus is our mediator, and he lives forever. And his grace, influencing your heart, is there to maintain the relationship in, in an open and honest way. So, Lord, I thank you that um, gone through some, that you're foreshadowed in that Old Testament, that, uh, that we see Jesus. So just pour your spirit out on us, Lord. Encourage your church as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. God bless you, saints.